Grace, mercy, and peace to you. From God our Father, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Santa seemed mopey lately. When pressed by Mrs. Claus, he tells her that he, hasn't, that he no longer believes in Harold, although he still believes in the idea of Harold. He hasn't stopped believing in all children, just Harold. His handwriting this, this year on his Christmas list is suspiciously neat. And the Harold who sat on his lap at the mall the other day, well, he looked awfully different than last year's Harold. Meanwhile, Harold is having his own doubts about the jolly old elf. After hanging up his Christmas stocking and help uh, set out Santa's snack, he waits until his parents are asleep and then sneaks downstairs to hide behind an armchair to see for himself. He's sleepy, but determined. Santa has decided to save Harold's house for his last stop this year. He hides behind the sofa in Harold's living room. If Harold is real, then when he comes out of his bedroom Christmas morning, he'll know. And if he doesn't, then his parents are going to have some explaining to do. But the fire is so warm and cozy and it's hard to stay awake after a long night's work. Now, what happens next is hilarious. The book is called The Day Santa Stopped Believing in Harold. It's a great story for young children. It's uh, really well illustrated. Uh, in our gospel lesson this morning, John the Baptist is languishing away in a prison cell, wondering out loud if he should stop believing in Jesus as the Messiah. doesn't seem much like a Christmas story, and yet every year at this time, here it comes again. Just about we're putting the finishing touches on our own Christmas wish list. Here comes John. And that's exactly why he shows up. Rarely do we get everything we want, a lot, but a lot more often we'll get just what we need. And on that very first Christmas, even though so many people didn't realize it, John or God had sent uh, mankind everything they needed. Humanity's Christmas wish list found all through the Bible, beginning in the Old Testament. The voices of prophets and kings and common folk cry out to God for divine gifts that will bring hope and a future. Abraham calls out for offspring and for a homeland. The Hebrew slaves of Egypt call out for deliverance and freedom. The nation of Israel calls out for protection from her enemies. The conquered Israelites call out for a second chance. The diaspora, the scattered nation of Israel, calls out for God's love and forgiveness. Every one of them recalled God's promise of a savior for a fruitful, peaceful, meaningful life. And in the midst of a dark existence, some of them are wondering if, if that was something they could still believe in. It's a pretty bold and extravagant wish list, but, but Christ's birth, uh, in Christ's birth, both the promises and the possibilities were fulfilled. Human desires and a divine pledge came together in a stable in Bethlehem under the Christmas star. It's a story about God's promise to humanity kept, a promise of forgiveness, deliverance, love, and steadfastness, a promise of life itself. But the kept promises of Christmas morning uh, weren't fully fulfilled uh, yet. The, the Christmas star, bright and, and beautiful and shining down on that tiny, uh, innocent baby Jesus, isn't really a sign of the completion of God's work. It's really only the beginning. The hard part was still to come. Isaiah's glorious words in this morning's Old Testament lesson remind us of the promises that God made, uh, promises of beauty and wonders, things that are, are possible when he fulfills our greatest desires. 
In the text from James, we're reminded that the, uh, the promise we celebrate as incarnate, that is, in the flesh on Christmas morning, isn't just the story of the star, it's also the story of the cross and the resurrection and the return. The epilogue has already been written, but just not yet revealed. The day when an all-grown-up, risen, and ascended King Jesus will return to restore all things. James senses our excitement, but he urges our patience, knowing that, that the story's not over until it's over on the day there will be no more unbelievers and no doubts. The promise of Christmas is not just gentle Jesus, meek and mild, a baby dependent on Mary and Joseph for his survival. It's also the promise of, of his future suffering and a cross for ours. Like Romeo and Juliet, Shakespeare's star-crossed lovers, God's promise of salvation uh, uh, is a, a literal star-slash-cross promise, isn't it? Shimmering with light and, and, and life against the dark background of a vicarious atonement, enduring and even dying for us in our place, a sinless Savior who became sin for us, something you can believe in. The season of Advent's important because it's essential that the church not lose sight of the cross amidst the dazzle of all the bright Christmas lights. It's a, a fact of life in Christ that even bewildered his cousin, John the Baptist. Now, news stories every week uh, reinforce that the world we know it, as we know it today isn't a very peaceful place, you know, even in this season of peace. We live in perplexing times. We live in complex times. People are hurting, and many of them are wondering, and will continue to wonder, where is God? Any senseless acts or uh, sudden disruptions in our lives can throw us into a crisis of faith. Those times we don't understand God's action or maybe inaction in our lives. But we don't have to let them shake our underlying faith in God or his goodness to us in Jesus Christ. Even seasoned believers will experience those, you know, why would God allow this to happen to me moments? They simply reveal our humanness, not a lack of saving faith. Like John the Baptist this morning, we've all had our own Matthew 11:3 moments, wondering aloud from our own prisons, Jesus, are you the one? Times when we feel discouraged, maybe, or confused, uh, disillusioned. Times when you catch yourself second-guessing your choices in life. All that means is that we're in pretty good company. John the Baptist asked that question, and he'd gotten his commission straight from God himself. He was the prophet of prophecy. Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. 430 years or so later, along comes John. And Jesus ties that, that prophecy to John in our gospel lesson this morning. John was the miracle child of the priest Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, born to them against all odds in their old age. He was a child born of promise, a promise delivered by an angel named Gabriel. At his birth, his father prophesied about him, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. And Luke tells us, the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. He fulfilled not only the prophecies, but everyone's highest hopes. Before his Cousin Jesus began his ministry. John had been hard at work on his, calling people to repentance, making the path straight, and preparing hearts to receive the coming king, the very son of God. 
He was so well-known and so popular, he was often mistaken for the Messiah himself. But he knew who Jesus was. Once he even proclaimed, as Jesus passed by, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Against his own protest, John had even baptized Jesus. And John had seen the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus as a dove afterward. And he heard God the Father speak his words of approval over his son. John was around for Jesus' early ministry. That meant that his own ministry was, was winding down. Some of his disciples had already become some of the Lord's disciples. When our lesson this morning, John is sitting in a filthy prison. And not just any prison. It was a prison at, at Herod Antipas' hilltop palace of Machairus, just across the Dead Sea in Jordan. It was also known as the Black Fortress. It was so secure that it would take an army to bust John out. And there was no army. John had called the, the king out on his marriage to his half-brother's wife. He'd met her while the, um, they were staying together visiting in Rome. Two divorces and one uh, war later, and they were a couple. The whole situation violated Jewish law, and John had called Herod to task over it publicly. Uh, never one to shy away from killing an enemy, John presented a special problem for Antipas. His new wife Herodias wanted him dead. Herod suspected, and certainly the people believed, that John was a great prophet. During riots, if he, if he killed him, John was sent to prison instead. In those days, prison was a place where people went into and uh, rarely ever made it back out. There was no television, no three squares, no rights, and no privileges at all, except maybe once in a, in a rare moment, a uh, visitation was allowed. And John's disciples did come to, to, to talk to him, to keep him in touch with what was going on with Jesus. And through them, he heard the stories of the Lord's ministry, maybe longing for the day that Jesus would free him with one of those miracles, and so he could see it all for himself. But the days soon turned into weeks, and the weeks into months. And by the time of our lesson this morning, John has been in prison for, for 10 months or 12 months or even more, just wasting away, unable to do what he'd been born and called to do. The man who had lived his entire life in the open air of the wilderness had been confined to a small, dark prison cell, maybe catching a ray of sunlight on a clear day through a narrow slit in the wall above him. Now put yourself in that cell with Jonas as the days and the months dragged on. And where was his miracle-working cousin? Why hadn't Jesus come to free him? Now John's got nothing but time on his hands to think, and so maybe he begins to wonder... I gave my life to God when he needed me. Where is he now that I need him? Now John had been given not just a gospel message to preach about the salvation that was at hand, but also a powerful dose of the law to bring people to repentance. He'd even gone so far as to put his life at risk when he called the religious leaders a brood of vipers. That was no compliment. It was particularly cutting because Satan had appeared as a serpent to Adam and Eve in the garden. That appearance had resulted in the fall of mankind into sin. They wouldn't have missed the reference, and they wouldn't have been very happy about it either. But that's, after all, what the law does, doesn't it? It helps, it really forces you, I guess, to, to see the truth of your sinfulness and therefore your need for a Savior, for Jesus. The Messiah John preached was supposed to bring salvation, but also fire and judgment. He heard the stories about all the love going around, how Jesus was reaching at the tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners and lepers, and, but he hadn't heard a thing about any judgment being meted out. Maybe he'd missed something. Maybe he'd gotten it wrong. 
What John might not have understood was that Jesus was going to come twice. First as the good shepherd, and then once again on the last day as the judge who would separate the sheep from the goats. There wasn't any room for unbelief, not with John's background and the angel announcing his miraculous birth and the leaping in the womb when when Mary, pregnant with Jesus, visited her cousin Elizabeth, who was pregnant with John. Confusion, maybe. Lack of the big picture, maybe. Uh, For sure, probably. You know, how could he know that it would be at least 2,000 years between, before Jesus returned uh, as judge with, all the, with the acts and, and all the fire and that stuff? He wasn't going to live long enough to see Good Friday and Easter. In fact, he was about to lose his own head. So after all this time forgotten, he sends a couple of his disciples to Jesus to ask him point blank, are you the one who was to come or should we look for another? Now, some people give John the benefit of the doubt about his doubt. They say maybe he was sending his disciples to Jesus for their benefit, not his. Now, we'll never really know, I guess, until we get to heaven and can ask him for ourselves. What we do know is that life's troubles can shake even a powerful faith. When they found Jesus, he invited them to stick around a while to listen and watch. And what news did they take back to John? You know, what had Jesus confirmed and what was his message to John? the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in our Old Testament lesson today. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, and the deaf hear. And he even gave them a couple more miracles to add. Lepers are cleansed, and the dead are raised up. This was just around the time Jesus had brought the widow's son from that town of Nain back from the dead. Jesus was absolutely the guy. And maybe out of love for his friend, Uh, There was another verse from Isaiah, a little later on, uh, a chapter later in Isaiah, that Jesus didn't quote in this passage. Uh, One Jesus had read himself in the synagogue uh, after he'd come come back from his time of temptation in the wilderness. Uh, It was a, a quote from Isaiah that he declared was really, he was the fulfillment of that prophecy. And part of it went like this. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And here's John in prison. But he knew John would understand the difference between being shackled by sin and shackled in irons. After sending John's disciples back to him, Jesus turned and he says to the crowds, among those born to women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. He knew. God knows. You know how the doubts can easily flood a troubled heart. That confusion can reign because we can't see the whole picture the way God can. And we're human, and we can hurt. And when you're in the midst of your own Matthew 11:3 moment, whether you're struggling with doubts or confusion, or you feel like your faith is in crisis, do what John did. Turn back to the source of that faith for, for comfort and assurance. Now, when Job, a man that God had, had bragged about to Satan, was allowed to have everything that mattered taken from him, his health, his wealth, even his family, he tore his robes, he shaved his head, he fell down the ground and he worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. See, Satan could, could rob Job of his health and his family and even all his worldly goods, but the one thing he could not take was Job's faith. King David had his own Matthew eleven three moments. He had a lot of them and a lot of his psalms are a result of those troubled times. The the troubles and trials of this life might shake your faith, 
but they can't take your faith. When in doubt, go to the source. With your tears, with your fears, with your, your questions, even your greatest expectations. Jesus and John were walking similar paths toward the same end, but only Jesus had the whole picture. Only Jesus could see the cross of the empty tomb in, in the distance. John knew everything he needed to know to fulfill his purpose, but he didn't know everything. Before long he would, because he'd be in heaven, rejoicing with the angels. His martyr's death may have inspired more people to turn to Jesus than a longer life ever could have. Faith was a risky business for John, and it can be a risky business for you and I. But the source, God in his word, reminds us what we can expect, even in our storms. It says we can expect a peace beyond understanding. It promises we can expect contentment in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in need or want. We can expect a, a purpose to our hardships, to grow in faith and to grow in our dependence on God and our trust in God. We can expect God's presence through flood or fortune. Jesus will abide with us always, even unto life everlasting. And we can expect a hope that is living and an inheritance that can never fade or spoil or pass away. Feelings and frustration, even honest doubts, don't change who you are in God's eyes. Even when you find it hard to believe in God, God still believes in you. And everything he's done, everything Jesus endured was done and endured for you. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you're always, always his beloved child with a perfect future in a perfect place just the other side of this life in heaven. That's forever. So as we draw closer to Christmas and we encounter maybe problems or troubles or things in our lives, uh, we may be tempted to ask, you know, what child is this? But the answer is always the same. The Son of God the Savior of the world. Amen. And now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding <clears throat> keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.